Ecclesiastes is where we will start. Let's pray, and then we will uh, jump in. Lord, you're so good to us, and we are reminded of that fact uh, each and every day. But again, on the Lord's Day, it's highlighted for us in a, in a, in a, in a refreshing way as we gather together as your people to fellowship and to study your word. And tonight, as we uh, gather to, to try and intently look at these books and, and understand the, the core messages that are found within, uh, to be better readers of them, I pray that you would again give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand, help me to communicate clearly and uh, in a way that would be helpful so that we would all be better readers and studiers of our Bible. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Ecclesiastes. Now, I was, so it was Wednesday. Wednesday, I was studying through Ecclesiastes, and we have small group on Wednesday evening, and we're going through 1 John. And so in the morning, I spent all morning studying Ecclesiastes, and then usually what I do is the afternoon, I study my 1 John stuff. The problem was, was that Ecclesiastes broke my brain. Right, <laughs> and so in order to get to First John, I was just like, I yeah, like you don't to be frustrated studying the Bible is not like the end goal, and so frustrated isn't the right word, but challenged is the right word, and Ecclesiastes is that. Okay, um, so again, we're in this wisdom literature section, and as I was studying through this, I was reminded there is a. Uh, again, like we talked about with, with Proverbs, you, if you try to read through five chapters of Proverbs a day, you're just going to like be swimming. That's not how they're meant to be read. They're meant to be mulled over, meditated on. Ecclesiastes, if you read it through once, you're going to be like, That's, why is that book in the Bible, right? You're going to have the Martin Luther about James. It's a epistle of straw. That's what Martin Luther called the book of James. So in order for us to understand Ecclesiastes, you got to work your way through it slowly and really marinate in it and things like that. So what we're not able to do tonight... Um, but the, again, that's also the, the beauty of the wisdom literature. You have to work at it. Right? You have to apply some diligence to it in order to understand it. And as you do, uh, it, it opens up and rewards you. Okay? So as we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, there are two uh, speakers in the book. There is the student and the preacher, or the, the teacher. The preacher is the, the main predominant voice. We hear the student at the beginning and at the end. And then everything else is this one, the preacher. Okay? Um, it is the student or perhaps an editor that compiled all the teachings of the preacher or the teacher into the book that we have at the, of, of the book of Ecclesiastes, and then he's the one that is commenting on it. Um, there's a key word in the book, of course, as you, if you've read through it, you probably know what it is. It's vanity, right? It appears a number of times. I believe it's 37 times the phrase vanity or vanity of vanities is used uh, in the Hebrew, and it is the word uh, hebel, okay? You see it like in Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And that's really what the word hebel means. It means a puff of air. Um, when I think about like a puff of air, I think of something like, uh, one, you can't see the air, the wind blowing or things like that, but you can see like, say, the air coming out of a humidifier, or an oil diffuser, if you have one of those. And if you try to grab it, what happens? Nothing. just goes away. It's a, it's a puff of wind. You can't grab it. You can't bottle it. It doesn't last long. And so this quote from uh, Edward Curtis, he says in Ecclesiastes, the metaphor describes the temporal nature of human life 
and those aspects of life that refuse to yield to human understanding and control. Okay, and that's what, what we'll see uh, the, the preacher talking about, the inability to understand and grasp some of these things. Okay? Now, when you read through, and I had this, this thought again as I was going through this last week, when you read through the book, you think, this is a real bummer of a book. Right? The, the preacher is a very pessimistic, uh, skeptical, perhaps even fatalistic person. Right? That's kind of like, what's the point? That's kind of what it seems to be, to be uh, on first reading, it could come across that way. But that's not the, the, the part of the book. The reason that the book might feel that way, feel pessimistic and fatalistic, is because it's talking about wisdom. It's talking about life lived under the curse, right? There is a way of wisdom, uh, but we live in a cursed world. And so therefore, uh, life is really hard. Proverbs portrays the blessing that comes from getting wisdom, Ecclesiastes shows the difficulty of life uh, pursued with wisdom in the fear of God. And this difficulty is because of sin, okay? So remember, Proverbs is, it does seem very formulaic. If you do this, you receive this blessing. Well, Ecclesiastes kind of helps to balance that. Not that Proverbs is imbalanced, but Ecclesiastes shows when we're pursuing the way of wisdom, when we're walking in the fear of the Lord, it doesn't always pan out perfectly. Life is hard, life is difficult, and that's because of sin. So the book feels a bit like a, a bummer at times, but we do remember that Ecclesiastes is divine wisdom literature written by God through a human instrument who was Solomon. Therefore, the message of the book is not going to counter other parts of Scripture, right? It's going to work hand in hand with everything else. And again, you also have to remember, what is the aim of wisdom literature? It's to help us to live well. It's to help us to master the world. And that, again, what kind of world do we live in? A fallen one, a broken one by sin. And so to flourish well... Uh, Ecclesiastes is going to help. Turn to the end of the book, actually. Go to chapter 12, and we're going to look at the conclusion in order to understand the purpose of the book. Uh, verses 9 through 14, this is, the, this is the student teaching, talking about the, the preacher, and he says this is his goal. He said, besides being wise, the preacher, this is verse 9, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Amen and amen in Ecclesiastes sometimes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Okay, so five things here that are the preacher's goal uh, and we should consider as we approach the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, he's wise. Therefore, his words in this book should be counted wise as well. So if the temptation is to be like, this is all really sad, hogwash, get rid of it. Uh, these are wise words. Verses 9 and 10, these words have been crafted with great care. They are words of delight and truth. Okay? So even though uh, it seems sad and bleak and fatalistic, they're not. We should find some delight and truth. He uses that word uh, in verse 11. These words are like goads. They're like cattle prods. Right? They're prodding us in the right way to go. This is the right way to think about the world. Okay? Uh, verse 11, these words are from Yahweh, the shepherd of Israel through his undershepherds. Notice shepherd is capitalized in your Bible. Or, I think most of them should be, right? Uh, so it gives us an idea of who it is that's speaking. These words are from the Lord. 
And then finally, uh, in verse 13, fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole duty of man, right? This is the conclusion. This is what we do. Life is bleak, but yet we are to be fearing God, keeping his commands, okay? So when we look at these things, we can see the, the goodness of the book of uh, Ecclesiastes um, amidst the, the supposed pessimism of the book. The teacher is getting us to think deeply about life under the sun, life in this fallen world, and about the things that we value and the things that we pursue, right, and, and what we are pursuing, okay? Now, the arrangement of the book comes, it's in two sections. Uh, somebody I was reading this last week showed, uh, I illuminated this to me. It's split evenly in the Hebrew and pretty close in the English as well. 111 verses in the first half and 222 verses, or 111 in the second half, making for a total of 222. And then they also pointed out, and I'm going to screw the math up, but basically there are uh, 37 times, I believe, the phrase vanity is used. If you triple that, that's 111. It's used three times in the first verse, so that's cluing you in that it should be tripled. I don't know. I was like, wow, that's way over my head. I would never, ever, ever seen that. But that, that's an interesting thing. And the point the guy was making is this, there is an arrangement to this book that is from like a beautiful mind. If you've seen that movie, the mathematician movie, right? That this is uh, just showing the arrangement shows the wisdom of the preacher, right? That that uh, this is a true piece of wisdom literature. Okay, uh, I think the two uh, sections of the book um, have two key refrains. Okay, the first half of the book has the repeated refrain that it is from God that one should eat and drink and enjoy their toil and the fruits thereof. Life lived apart from the knowledge that these things are from God is a life devoid of judgment. So if you look at chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Okay, so this is kind of the repeated refrain. He's going to, as we'll see, uh, the preacher will will make... um, observations or his own personal experience. And this is the conclusion he keeps coming back to in the first half of the book. The second half of the book, you can turn to like chapter seven is where it starts. And this is the section that considers wisdom and folly and the mystery of God's ways. So he's saying, how can I fully comprehend the ways of God? And so chapter seven, look at verse 25. Uh, I turn my heart to to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Look at chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Uh, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out how the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know it, he cannot find it out, okay? So the ultimate conclusion the preacher seems to draw is, again, the necessity of fearing God. So if you look at chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear him, they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So again, as he considers wisdom and folly and God's workings, what's his conclusion? Fear, fear the Lord, okay? Um, so the outline of the book, I think I put a broad outline in your, uh, in your books. The introduction is found in the first verse 
right, where we hear this is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then the first section, starting in chapter 1, well, the, through, all the way through chapter 6, uh, I've entitled, Enjoy the Gifts of God by Recognizing They Are From God. Okay, this is that, that first section we just, we just talked about. Um, note, uh, notice, uh, well, first of all, he has a poem, really, that starts in verse 2 and goes through verse 11. This is the familiar vanity of vanities. Uh, all is vanity. And then we get to chapter 1, starting in verse 12, all the way through chapter 2. And this is the preacher's personal pursuit of pleasure, right? That is uh, alliterated, and I didn't even mean to do that. Look at me. Look at me go. Um, and he, he uses kind of a refrain. You see this like in chapter, uh, we see it like one sixteen. I said in my heart. You see it in two one. I said in my heart, right? This is the, the, the preacher saying and going after these things. Right? I'm, I'm pursuing these things. So if you look at like chapter 2, verse 1 and following, he talks about all the things that he tried to find pleasure in. Things like laughter, verse 2, wine, verse 3, building, slaves, wealth, music, physical companionship, and sex. And ultimately he says, all these things are vanity. Right? They didn't provide me the ultimate pleasure that I wanted. And then he considers, starting in chapter 2, verse 12, the fleeting remembrance of the fool and the wise. And his conclusion is, it's, it's better to be wise than to be a fool. Both, But here's his problem. Both the fool and the wise die, and neither are remembered. He says that in verse, verse 16. Um, and then let's jump ahead to chapter 3, because we're going to have to move pretty quickly to get through all this. Chapter 3, again, he opens with another poem, verses 1 through 8. Uh, and then... Notice starting in chapter 3, verse 9, all the way through four sixteen, he makes observations about people in the world. So he now, instead of saying, I said in my heart, he said, I perceived, right? Or I saw. Um, <clears throat> verse 10 of chapter 3, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. So here he is. Um, making observations. So first of all, he talks in verses 9 through 15 about the the observations about men's toil in the mystery of God's ways. Um, Look at chapter 3, verse 12. This is kind of a key verse. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Okay, this is when he's considering the work of man. Um. He makes observations starting in 3.16 through 22 about the death of the righteous and the wicked. Chapter 4, he talks, makes observations about people oppressing one another. Verses chapter 4, 4 through 14, he makes observations regarding people's work. And he says, these are things that motivate, right? They toil out of envy, he says in verse 4. Verses 7 through 8, they toil for riches that never satisfy. Uh, verse 9, they toil for themselves with no one to share with. What's the point of all this? Is what is kind of what he's what he's asking. Um, and then go to chapter five, verses eighteen through twenty. Here's another conclusion that he draws: Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his law and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, okay? Then we'll, we'll move ahead to chapter 7, and this is the second half of the book. We see here wisdom and folly and the mystery of God's ways. So again, it opens with another poem. Uh, I, there might be a pattern to how these poems are laid out and the things that follow. 
maybe setting us up, but I, I wasn't smart enough to, to discern it. I'm sure somebody else can. Uh, but this poem contrasts wisdom and folly. Uh, and then, like, he says in 7.14 and following, 7.14 through the end of the chapter, here he's contrasting the ends, of the, the ends of the wise and the ends of the fool. They're both mysterious. So his conclusion again, it's best to fear God. Right, that's where we need to do. Um, chapter 8, verse 10 through 9, 10, he has a section that, says, that, that deals with death coming for the righteous and the wicked. Therefore, fear God and find joy in God's gifts. And then he starts in chapter 9, verse 11, all the way, or uh, yeah, 9, 11 through 18 here he's talking about. And really this last section of the book is dealing with time and with age and uh, best to enjoy the years that you have. Uh, he says, um, like eleven six through twelve eight. He ta- twelve eight. He talks about youth and old age, and remember your Creator in the days of your youth. So he says, like say in eleven nine, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Okay. So really, if we get to the end of, and I know this is just flying through and maybe the, the water is more muddy than when we started. But the end of Ecclesiastes, I think this is kind of the takeaway from it, right? When he says, especially in the first half of the book, that it is best that you find enjoyment in your toil, you find enjoyment in the gifts that God has given and you fear him. That's meaning in life, right? If you're looking for those things to ultimately satisfy you in and of themselves, they won't. But how do you, how do you enjoy food and toil and sex and relationships and all these things? In the fear of God, Right? Then, you, then you understand, okay, this is the parameters for which they are to exist in. And then that is how you find, uh, that, is, that is the wisdom, I think, of the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay? That was Ecclesiastes. Questions? No. Okay, good. Let's go to Song of Songs. And this is the one that everybody's come for, right? Uh, when I taught this to the youth group, this was going to, well, Aaron, I know, is really sad. I asked him if he wanted to... Uh, to live chat with me tonight on this because uh, uh, he's not here because his, his mom has, has COVID and he was exposed. So I know he's, he's sad to not be here, but that's okay. We come to the Song of Songs and we all know what this book is about, right? It's about the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, okay? Um, and I was thinking as, as we jump into this book, why is it so weird and awkward oftentimes in the context of the church to talk about a book like this? And, and I think there's, uh, there's two reasons for it, okay? When we talk about, when, we, when it comes to conversations about sex in the church, we often seem to go in two directions, okay? There are two predominant responses. One is prudishness, right? And the other is, is uh, a, a grossness, would be maybe the way that I would, I would phrase it, right? Um, so you can either go on one side where, like, we're not going to talk about that. The implication is there's a dirtiness to it. Uh, it's it's uh, unbecoming. Uh, to talk about it at all. Um, and, and, and there is, the scriptures give lots of wisdom about how we talk about uh, sex in scripture. I think about uh, Ephesians chapter five, right? When it says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Okay, so we can go on one side where we're like, we're just not going to talk about this subject at all, right? We don't think that we think it's kind of 
icky, right? On the other side, though, we can go uh, maybe have too much of a willingness to talk about sex. And there can be a, a crassness with which how we talk about it and a, um, a cheapening of it, if that makes sense. And it kind of follows along the lines of our culture as a whole, right? Um, maybe there can be too much openness about people's personal lives or things are said or implications or insinuations or jokes made then should be said. Or I think oftentimes this is where churches often fall. They fall into the kitschy, gimmicky conversations about sex. And, and if, you, if, you want, if you want an idea of this, go to christianbook.com and go to the marriage and family section and look up the books under sexuality and look at the, just the titles and the covers and you will, at least I did, I laughed my head off and was sad a little bit too because they're all, I, I don't, for me, they don't seem to be serious about the subject in the way the Bible is serious about it, okay? So I think that there's kind of two balances and I think that we end up going extremes on either side. Um, so so that, that's kind of my, as I was thinking about why, why is it that when, whenever you, people talk about, oh, we're going to go through Song of Solomon, ooh, Song of Solomon, well, it doesn't have to be that way. It, it's, it's here, it's good, and we, we can walk our way through it, okay? So that's kind of just some, some thoughts that I had, introduction, that was all for free, okay? I think Song of Solomon is calling us to something better than prudishness or a casual irreverent crassness, okay? And I think that's what we're going to see here, okay? So the purpose of the book is this. The Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, is putting forward the wonder, joy, and erotic delight that is to be shared between a husband and a wife, and it is a return to God's design in the garden. The man and the woman are naked and not ashamed. I think that that is what we are to see here. Paul House says this, the Song of Solomon illustrates free and passionate love between a man and a woman, the book may not be interpreted simply as a collection of secular love songs, but as the type of love God counsels every couple to emulate. The book offers ecstatic freedom, I think it's a really good term, for which Proverbs provides appropriate boundaries, right? So he's trying to show how this works in the confines of what, proper, uh, of what Proverbs does, okay? So that's kind of where the, the, what the purpose of the book is. Now, uh, this might be a, a moot point, but we call it Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. I will refer to it more as the Song of Songs uh, because that is what the, the verse one is, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And that idea between the Song of Songs is that this is the preeminent song, right? It is the Song of Songs, like the Holy of Holies, right? It is the most preeminent of songs. The other thing is that I don't think this, as we'll get into in just a minute, this isn't about Solomon. Solomon is the writer, but it's not his love story. I think he's, he's recording it about someone else, okay? Now, the audience of the book of, of Song of Songs is young people. Uh, it, it, just like Proverbs was predominantly to young people, Song of Songs is predominantly to young people. And the reason that we, we see that is because there's these repeat, repeated refrains three times. We'll see it in chapter two, like verse seven, where he's saying, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, not to stir up love before it awakens. So it's serving as a warning and an instructive uh, element. This is what God glorifying uh, intimacy between a husband and a wife looks like. And at the same time, it's only for that. So I adjure you, do not awaken love until the time is right, okay? 
Now, Song of Solomon has a place in wisdom literature as well, okay? Just like we were talking a minute ago about Ecclesiastes' place. Um, Song of Songs, or Song of Songs, I'll probably call, go back and forth because I can't keep it straight, right? Song of Songs, along with Esther, are the two books in the Old Testament that don't explicitly mention Yahweh. They don't mention um, God and his work. However, that doesn't mean they're not from God and they're not divine, as both of them are included in the Old Testament canon for a reason, okay? And when we come to the Song of Songs, we need to see what it is teaching is really an extension of everything else the wisdom literature has taught us, right? And Proverbs has already dealt with this a number of times with those warnings between stay away from the adulterous woman and hold fast to your wife. The Song of Songs is doing the same thing, just giving us kind of a story uh, to set it in, okay? Um, The other aspect, when we're thinking about reading the book canonically, so in the canon of Scripture, we've already touched about this, uh, it fits with what Proverbs says with, uh, in relationship to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes says, if the physical relationship of a husband and wife is not going to bring you ultimate forever pleasure, right? It can only be properly enjoyed when, we, when you're fearing God. So it helps us see that, okay? And then even further out, as we talked about, I think this is fulfilling uh, or, or when, when God-ordained marriage, husband and wife are living together and enjoying the fruits of their marriage, right? They're fulfilling Genesis 2, that they're naked and not ashamed. And I think this is further enhanced reading Song of Solomon, and you see all of the garden imagery, all of the vineyard language, all this nature language that is, that is uh, connected there, okay? So a couple of, of, thing, of themes from the Song of Songs. First of all, it's an impressionist love song. Um, do you know what impressionism is in art? You usually have two things, or two things contrasting, impressionism and realism. Realism is going to be a really uh, close uh, picture, like if you were to take a picture and then paint it, and it's very similar, right? That's realism. Well, impressionism uh, is, is trying to capture the essence of an object rather than the strictness of it, right? Here's a definition. Impressionism aimed, at the, aimed to capture the essence of the object and its relationship with light, whereas realism is an attempt to represent the subject matter accurately and truthfully, particularly ordinary everyday life. Okay? So Song of Songs is an impressionistic love story. It's not a realistic one. So there's lots of poetic, flowery language. So when he says things like, your hair is like a flock of goats running down the mountain, well, it wasn't really. Um, one of the things I, and maybe you've seen this before, somebody takes all the, the vivid language that the Song of Songs uses, and then they put that all together to make a, a picture of the woman, and she's hideous, right? She's got goat for hair, you know, she's got this massive nose and fruit all over her body, right? It just wouldn't be true. So that's why it's impressionistic. It's not, not realistic, Secondly, it celebrates an erotic sexual relationship between a husband and wife, okay? Um, and that word erotic is really the right, right word, I think, to describe the Song of Solomon. It is the arousal, arousal of sexual love and desire. It is a strong, affected sexual desire, right? That is the, the implication. There's a, there's a strength to this. And at times, the, the language almost seems graphic, right? You read it like, wow, that's what he's, that's what they're saying. Yes. And so we can sometimes almost blush at some of these things, but again, 
the intense longing that these lovers feel for each other, uh, when it's in the context of marriage, it's good. This is God's design. This is how it is supposed to be, okay? Uh, sex in marriage is to be cultivated and enjoyed. Uh, Daniel Estes said this, our contemporary culture too often diminishes sex by removing it from the marital relationship and turning it into mere recreation. In God's design, sex is a celebration, an expression of the intimate closeness of a husband and a wife who are pledged to one another in committed love. Okay, so all of these things in here are good. This is from God, and, and we, we accept it as that. All right, so let's talk about interpreting the book. Um, there are so many ways to interpret the book of Song of Songs. As many people have written books on the Song of Songs, there are interpretations. As many people have taught on it, there are interpretations. Uh, so I found six, and I probably could have found more, but these are the, the six that I came across, okay? Um, the first one would be the oldest maybe the oldest interpretation. It would be an allegorical interpretation. This was predominant in, in early church history especially, uh, and it still is, is somewhat predominant today. Um, and they don't view this as a, a story about two people falling in love, but it's more representative of God's love for the nation of Israel, God's love for the church, right? So uh, you think about all the language like in Hosea or Ezekiel, uh, where the Lord is talking about uh, how, how he loved Israel as a bride and all of these things, but she played the whore. Well, this is supposed to be picturing God's relationship with Israel purely, okay? I don't think that's the proper interpretation, but it is, it is an interpretation, and you could probably make some application from it, but I don't think that's the main, main point of the book. Another interpretation is to see this book as a collection of love songs that have no collectedness together. There's no, or no connection together. So it's just individual love songs. Um, and as you read the text, I think that's really hard to walk away and say, there, there seems to be a flow uh, quite clearly to this text. Um, Jim Hamilton, the, uh, somebody that I really appreciate and, and uh, have referenced a lot, but I disagree with him on his interpretation on this. He sees this as a, as a series of, it's a, uh, a groom going after his bride and overcoming obstacles to get to her. In short, is what he, how he would interpret it. And again, like it, he's not coming up with that out of thin air. He has ideas for that. But I don't think that's, the, again, the best way to interpret the text. <clears throat> Another perspective, uh, Todd Chipman, I was reading, uh, and his, his interpretation would be to view this book in two separate halves. The first deals with the physical, passionate union of the couple, and the second half dealing with conflict in marital relations around the sexual union, um, and then the, the, the resolution that can come to that conflict through the joys of marital intimacy. Um, again, I, that's not a, a bad proposal. I don't think it's the, the best way to interpret the book, however. The, the last two are the ones that I am most intrigued by, and I think I would combine these to make maybe a new view. Well, I, I don't think it'd be new, but I would combine them. Um, Jason DeRuti puts forward that there are four characters in this story, 
Okay, so you have Solomon, you have the Shulamite woman, who we'll get to in just a minute. You have the Shulamite shepherd, who would be the Shulamite woman's lover. And then you have the others. Because as you read, you'll see in your Bible, these superscriptions added, he, she, others. These are the voices that are speaking in this story. And then Solomon, of course, is the one that is writing it. And we see Solomon appear a couple times in chapter 3 and in chapter 8. And so these four voices... um, are all a part of the, the story. And basically, this view would look at this story as not a love song about Solomon going after his bride, but after the Shulamite woman and the Shulamite shepherd. And Solomon is kind of a, uh, uh, a distant party to the story, okay? Um, and part of the reason for this interpretation is Solomon is not the ideal man that is put forward in this book, Right? And, and that, is, that, is a, that is a major problem to the interpretation that would say Solomon is. Okay? Uh, so Deruti said this. He said, this view asserts that a king like Solomon, who had multiple wives and concubines, right, a thousand of them, <laughs> could not voice such expressions to a single woman. No, it, it, the, the man speaking in here is very devoted to this woman alone. And she is very devoted to him alone. The Solomonic figure is always in third person in this reading, and the dialogue in love only happens between the shepherd and the Shulamite. The narrator appears to portray Solomon negatively in chapter 3, verse 6, 6 through 11, and 8, 10 through 12. He is exalted, yet distant, and a mere collector of women with whom he has no real relationship. The Shulamite is clearly one of these women, but she has given her heart and body wholly to another. Okay, So I like that interpretation. I think that that is part of the interpretation. The other part, and this is where I would lean, and I think this is a story talking about uh, people that fall in love, get married, and the growth of that all the way through old age. I think that that's kind of the story. There's a progress, okay, from before marriage to marriage and then into the golden years. And Paul House is the one that has advanced this, at least in, in what I was reading. So I think you combine these two and I think you see that, that there's these four characters involved. It's a love story between the Shulamite woman, the Shulamite shepherd. And Solomon is writing this at the end of his life. And he is, you know, in all the wisdom literature, he fears the Lord, even though uh, Kings tells us that, that his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. The, the, the wisdom literature at the end would say that he obviously didn't know the Lord. And so I think maybe he's writing this at the end of his life and he's looking back and he's going, that's real love, right? That's much better than what I've done pursuing all of these, all of these different women, okay? So let's kind of just walk through the book. Uh, we have an introduction, chapter one. Chapter one through two, we see these declarations of love that they are making to one another. So he sa- she says things like, uh, her lover's love is better than wine. He declares her beauty in chapter one, verse eight. Chapter 2, verse 3, she delights in her lover. And then we get to this warning in verse 7. Don't awaken love before the time is right. right? So they're, they've not committed themselves to one another, but they are expressing their delight and their love for one another. And then starting in chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5, I think this is sexual desire for the beloved. And I think here what you're seeing is when, when, when two people are falling in love, that physical component of attraction has to, it's part of it, right? It's, we don't, that's not the only thing, but that is a part of it because that's part of the marital union. Um, 
So, so physical intimacy and enjoyment is, is part of that marriage union. If people are not attracted to one another, there should be a concern, right? Because this is a big part of God's design, okay? Um, you see chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, these two desire for each other, but they, they're, they're not. So verse 5, again, a warning. Don't awaken love before the time is right. In chapter 3 there, okay? So there's this desire. And then I think we get to the wedding, starting in chapter 3, verse 6. And my, my Bible has the, the heading, Solomon arrives for the wedding. And here in, in these verses, this is the arrival of Solomon. And I thought for a while that it was Solomon arriving for his wedding. Because if you notice down in verse 11, they'll say, Go out, O daughters of Zion, look upon the king Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. Well, that actually would probably imply it's already happened, right? And he's arriving for it. He's got his crown on. Uh, this is not his wedding. He's, he's showing up, okay? Um, and, and Jason DeRucci pointed out here that when you read this, Solomon here, the connection is not to the woman. He's distant in this, in this scene, uh, but he's looked upon and celebrated by others. So that leads to chapter four. And here the, the groom adores his bride. So he things, says things like in verse one, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, right? So again, this is this expression of delight but it progresses quite substantially from where he began, okay? Um, he, as he describes uh, her body, right? And he uses very uh, colorful, vivid, um, evocative language to describe her. Notice all of the personal addresses that he makes to her. You are, your hair, your whatever. He's saying all these things about her, how beautiful you are, okay? And then this leads to chapter 4, verse 16, the second half of it, into chapter 5, the consummation of their wedding, right? So he says, she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Then he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk, okay? I think this is, this is the culmination of, right, of the wedding day has come to this, this point. And then you hear the response of, these other, of the others, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love, okay? Uh, again, uh, then, then we get to chapter 5, starting verse 2, and all the way through chapter 6, verse 3, I think we see provision and desire for times of separation. And so here it seems like it's talking about the times where the couple has to be separated, and so it's picturing first a, a, a dream that she has. Um, we see in verses two through eight, the bride is longing for her husband. Um, some interpret this to, to say that the, the, the husband comes to the wife and she rebuffs his advances. Uh, they think that's what it's picturing. I don't think that's, that's the case. Because um, like in verse four, it says that her heart was thrilled when he went to open the door and then she opens the door and, she's, and he's not there. So she's saddened by it. Um, so this leads her to go find her lover is, is what happens, right? She's looking for him. She can't find him. And so in verse nine, it's interesting, right? Um, the, uh, she's going out and she's looking for her love, lover. And here the other voices come in and say, what's so special about your lover? Right? Why is your beloved more than any other beloved? Um, and, and, and so it's almost as if people are saying, well, your beloved is gone, just go find another. But she's 
a chaste and pure woman, as we will see, she's not going to do that. And so she goes on and starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 10, she professes how her lover is more than other lovers. She's not going to go after another lover. So she describes him again. This is, he's ruddy and handsome and radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000, right? He is different. She loves him. She's devoted to him. She's committed to him. Uh, She's not going to be like all the others. And then you see in chapter 6, verse 1, the others are persuaded by this, right? They're like, oh, wow, uh, this is really cool right? that this, this woman loves her husband. She's committed to him. So they tell her, uh, go, or they go to, to help her find her beloved. Verses 2 and 3, she knows where her beloved is, and so she goes to him. And then we see, starting in 6, 4, all the way through 8, 4, and this is where your, at least my, my Bible has in the heading, Solomon and his bride delight in each other. Again, I don't think this is Solomon. I think this is the Shulamite shepherd. But this is the joy and delight and satisfaction of marital intimacy. Okay, so this is like what we read in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, again, these two are enjoying one another. They are enjoying one another's bodies. They are reunited. Um, delight in one another is to grow. I think that's what we're supposed to see in these chapters, that they, uh, the longer they are together, the more they love one another. Uh, Paul House comments on these verses, and he says, the man responds to the woman's desire for him with, ex- oh wait, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm reading too far ahead. Never mind. Um, and then we see in chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, I think permanence in marriage. So you notice especially verse 5, this phrase, who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? So I think it's, you're supposed to picture them in old age, right? As she's now leaning on him, she needs help as she's walking along. Um, so the per, perhaps the picture is there of old age. Uh, and then there's this continued pledge of love to one another in verses 6 and seven, right? That he says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, okay? So they continue to pledge their love to one another in old age. And then we get to the last part, <clears throat> starting in verse eight, and this was the part that I was like, I have no clue what this is. Um, and so thankfully, the again, this is my shout out for the ESV study Bible. It's very helpful. Um, really, these verses, I think, are instruction for chasteness, right, for uh, fidelity, okay? So what happens is the others ask a question in verse 8 and 9, and I think it's being posed to this seasoned couple. These are a man and a woman that are mature, and they're asking a question about a young girl who is not yet betrothed. And they have this, uh, verse 9, it talks about if she is a wall or if she is a door, Okay? And the idea of the wall is uh, propriety and chasteness. The door is that there's lots of people going in and out. Right? That is, uh, she is promiscuous. Okay? So the idea is if she is a wall, uh, people stop at her. Right? There's no going in. Um, then we will celebrate her. Right? We will build a monument of silver or however it is, uh, a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we're going to lock her up. Right? If she's going to be promiscuous, we're not going to let her out. They'll hide her. And so the Shulamite woman seems to respond in verse 10, and she says, I was a wall. I was chaste. I was not promiscuous. And she found peace in her husband, is what she's saying. So there's 
a reward and a blessing that comes from chasteness. And then we see uh, verses 11 through 12, the reference to Solomon and to his vineyards. And again, this is another reason why I don't think this is a love story about Solomon. Uh, He is distant here, not seen as the husband. Uh, The vineyard could be referring to the woman's sexuality. And she's saying, I did not give it to Solomon or to these others, right? I kept it for myself. Uh, And it is contrasted with Solomon's here, right? So um, she says, my vineyard, my very own is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousands and the keepers of the fruit 200, okay? So again, it is just describing the purity, I think, and the chasteness of this husband and wife. And then it closes, verses 13 and 14, with the haste that this man and this woman, the Shulamite woman, the Shulamite shepherd make to go to be and be with one another. Like, he's like, she, uh, um, he's, he's like, I'm coming. She's like, hurry up and get home, right? That's kind of, I think, the way that the book closes uh, there, okay? So that is the song of songs. Questions? Right. In verse, in 10 or nine, eight, nine. Yeah. That we have a little sister. Right. And it's very odd, right? We have a little sister and she has no breasts. That's a very odd. So I think, yeah. Yeah. So again, I think what it is, it's the others coming to this chaste couple, this a uh, wise couple, and they are asking a question about this. How should a young girl behave, right? So it'd be like a young girl going to a seasoned godly woman and say, how should I behave? And she would say to her, you should behave in this way, right? You're not going to sleep around with everybody. You're going to preserve yourself for, for marriage and things like that. So that's what it, I think it is. And so that's where that, again, that language of a wall is referencing um, stopping and a door is people going in and out, right? And so if she's a wall, they'll celebrate her, right? If she's pure, they're like, this is a great thing. But if she's a door and people are going in and out to her, uh, then they're going to hide her away, right? When it says, we'll, we will enclose her with boards of cedar, right? So we're going to keep her from continuing to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does, yeah. Okay, that's, what, that's my understanding of it. But it is a very, like, odd <laughs> conclusion to the book in a way. Yep. Right. But if you think about it, if the story is progressing and telling the growth and development of this couple, and now at the end, they're in these seasoned years, they can really give some wise counsel, right? And, and especially her, again, I think the picture is that this is an upright couple in, in their whole uh, marriage. And you see that especially in the passages where she's going out to find her lover and others are like, well, what's so special about your man? She's like, well, let me tell you, okay? Any other questions? Good question. Yeah. Yeah, my question is, if traditionally this was interpreted like uh, Hosea, Mm -hmm. all about Jesus, all about our relationship with God, Mm -hmm. which my commentary Mm -hmm. says Mm -hmm. that at the time of Jesus, it's been understood by Jewish scholars as allegorically, Mm -hmm. been passed down from uh, the traditional interpretation that they had for so long? Well, I think that 
I think you can interpret, you can make applications that way. I don't know if that's the primary one, especially in the wisdom literature context. Because like all of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, that is like wisdom for living godly for people, you know? So it seemed a little odd in one sense to now insert this as a completely allegorical story about the Lord's love for the nation of Israel. Um, and also, there's nothing in here that would say that we should interpret it that way. That would be the other question. Because like Hosea is very clear. Like the Lord is saying, uh, when, when Israel was a child, I loved her like this. Or, um, you know, like Ezekiel chapter 16, Israel was a child that was covered in blood out in the wilderness, and I went and I cleaned her off, and then she grew into a woman, and then she played the whore, right? So we're very clearly told you're supposed to interpret that allegorically. Here you're not. It just seems to say this is, the, this is a love story between these two, two people. And I think, like, it, 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 it's, it's, it's helpful because then we, the Bible addresses everything, you know? Like, it, it's not shying away from these issues uh, and how God has designed it. So, I mean, I, but I mean, if somebody interprets it allegorically, I don't think it's not the end of the world either. You, you're not going to make a terrible in, end there. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. And I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure because that's one of those like conundrums of scripture in a sense. Right. And, and I'll, I'll research it. Or you actually you have two weeks. You can research it and I'll research it as far as. Yeah. Right. 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 Yep. There would be the husband and one Right. I don't know. The other thing that I'd say is that the scripture never condones multiple. It never says this is the pattern. This is the thing that you should do. Right? It just states it. This is what's happened. But it doesn't, you know, even, and the Lord always uses it. So you think about like Abraham and uh Hagar, right? That that well, he wasn't supposed to do that, but yet it happened, right? Yes. Right. That's a pretty good answer, right there. <laughs> Right. Right. Because of sin. Right. Right. Or, or he he allowed for these things to happen. Yeah. I guess it would have naturally happened. Right. Oh, you're talking about in the 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 Levirate law, right? To the, but that's that's his brother's wife, not his sister, person, right? Right. The forever marriage changed on account of Yeah. Death. Right. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Well, like Jesus pointed out, the, the Pharisees changing the, the, the actual true 
meaning of what God meant by the mm -hmm. laws to better fit and make them comfortable. And right. Them yep. They were doing that. Of, well, this isn't working, so I'm going mm -hmm. to modify this, but still stay within the law. Right. And so I think Jesus pointed that out, and that's when that change possibly started to occur. Yeah. You guys are, are making up your own stuff. Right. This isn't what is meant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. God knew that, you know, man's gonna sin. Yep. So there's gonna come a time when because of adultery Yes. Be because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you certificates of divorce. Right. right. Yep. And so that could be the same thing in regards to multiple multiple wives. But so then didn't Jesus say, But I tell you you can get a divorce in the case of adultery. So he right. he condoned divorce and said, I condone divorce as well. Under a different circumstance. Right. It's in, in these, well, and that's, that's a big debate, right? Like, let's open up that one now, right? You know? Uh, well, I mean, he said that. Right. In these, yes, exactly. Yeah. Good questions. Uh, because of all your questions, we took up the rest of our time here. <laughs> Can we, uh, Lamentations, can you? 10 more minutes? Huh? 10 minutes? Yeah, you got 10 minutes. We can be done in 10 minutes pretty easily. Okay, and then we don't have to do Lamentations. That, that'd be helpful. All right, we'll, we'll breeze through it. The book of Lamentations, I appreciate your, your questions and insights, and I don't always have the answer, so I'll look. Lamentations, the context, of course, is uh, right after the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, 2 Kings 25, Jeremiah 52 record for us the deportation, the final deportation and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and then Lamentations is set right at that time. So the city is now devoid of people, or there are people there, but not very many. It's raised to the ground. The temple's destroyed. The king's house is destroyed, and all these things. So it is a book lamenting that fact and lamenting the exiled state of the of the nation of Judah. Okay, um, there, we don't know who the author is. It's often attributed to Jeremiah because. Uh, it would have been written about that about that same time, but we don't really know. Okay, um, Lamentations. You can read the own thing about its uh, about the canonical canonical context in which it is where it is set, but it is pointing us forward to hope. Let's talk about the message. Um, the author of Lamentations is lamenting the destruction of the nation and the city of Jerusalem, as well as the people who once inhabited this place. The tone of the book is dark, but the author never charges God with wrong. He reminds his readers of God's righteousness and judgment. He knows that this judgment has come because of Israel's sin, and he also recalls the same consistent character of God that demands he must punish sin also means he'll be faithful to his covenant promise. So he's saying just because the Lord is faithful to the covenant promise that when we sinned, he would send us into exile, so he will be faithful to restore us again, right? That's kind of the, the hope. So the people feel as if they're abandoned, but they know uh, ultimately they are looking forward to the hope of the Lord restoring them. Paul House said, God's righteousness demands that sin be punished. God's faithfulness requires that promises to the faithful be kept. Right, that's a really good summation of the book. Uh, the book is actually, it's a collection of five different laments, um, and they are acrostics, right? So in the Hebrew, the first letter of each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So you'll see in your Bible, you have 22 verses in each chapter, okay? Uh, it is, so it is an acrostic. 
Uh, in the third, you'll notice, though, that it is three times longer. It has 66 verses in it. So the first three verses all begin with the same letter, and the next three begin with the same letter. Of course, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us because we're not reading our Bibles in Hebrew. At least I'm not. Maybe some of you are. But uh, if you are, then you should be up here teaching this instead of me. Okay? Uh, I think the book has a chiastic structure to it, so I've outlined it that way. Again, a chiasm is the beginning and ending are the same kind of thing, and you're moving in to the central point, which I think is the middle of chapter 3, dealing with the mercies of the Lord. Uh, there are uh, three voices, the city, the nation, and then an individual that are speaking here. Okay, so the first chapter is Jerusalem speaking, and here the city is saying, I've rebelled against the Lord. Uh, Jerusalem is personified as an impoverished widow, right? She's sitting, she was once wealthy, but now she's become an, an impoverished. Um, she is, uh, her, 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 impoverished state is because of her sin is what he is he is talking about uh you see in chapter one she's talking about the lovers her lovers i called to my lovers they cannot save me so chapter one verse two um she says uh she has none to comfort her among all her lovers she has none to comfort her all her friends have dealt treacherous treacherously with her they have become her enemies okay so basically in chapter one you see chapter one verse 18 the lord's judgment is right where it says, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Okay, so this is the city speaking. This is what it feels, uh, and the Lord is right in his judgment. Chapter two, we see what the Lord has done, the destruction of the city. And here the, the author describes the very real feeling that because of this judgment, it seems as if the Lord is now their enemy. Uh, and here the lamenter is... Uh, understands that it's not Babylon acting by their own power that has caused this destruction. Rather, it's the Lord who has brought it upon them. Okay, Babylon is just the instrument. Um, the focus in chapter 2 seems to be on the destruction of the city itself. As you see, um, uh, verses that are talking about the, the walls of the city, the gates of the city, all of these things are destroyed. Uh, verse 1 is really interesting where he says that the Lord has not remembered his footstool. Well, Isaiah 66, one says, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my, or this house is my footstool. Uh, so the picture, of course, with the temple was that, that in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat where the Lord would meet them, that's like where his feet would rest from heaven. Well, now that place has been destroyed, okay? Um, so verse seven talks about the destruction of the temple, verses eight and nine, the destruction of the walls and the gates. If you look at verse 14, you see a specific group of people here denounced. It is the prophets and the priests. These are, you know, in Jeremiah's day, they're all countering the message of Jeremiah. Oh, don't listen to Jeremiah. The yoke of, of uh, Babylon will soon be thrown off, okay? And then we see in chapter 2, verse 17, a very important verse. This is covenantal faithfulness. The Lord had promised to Israel that if you, if you rebel against me, you will go into judgment, in exile, and here it has come. Then we get to chapter three, and we hear this individual speaking. This is the, the man of affliction. And, and if you're reading through Dominion and Dynasty, Stephen Dempster puts forward the idea that this is a man speaking as a representative of the line of David. This is the king in Israel. I've always thought it was Jeremiah, 
but I actually think that is, it, is the, it is a king. I think that's a better way to, to understand that. And the reason would be, one, um, is the removal of the king through judgment. So remember, Jehoiachin is the one that he's been exiled into uh, Babylon and ultimately will be released. Secondly, in chapter 4, verse 20, we hear the cry of the people. And they're speaking about how the king is captured in the pits. And that connects to the man of affliction in chapter 3, verse 53, where it says, they flung me alive into the pit, right? So it seems like maybe there's a connection there between the king spoken of and what happened. Um, You can also go to Psalm 143, which is a psalm of David. Look at verses 3 and 4. And then look at Lamentations 3, 4 through 6. There seems to be a very striking connection. Of course, David is a is the, the ultimate king in Israel um, other than, than Jesus, okay? So first of all is the man of affliction speaking. And then we get to the central point of the book, I think. The mercies of the Lord. All this bleakness, sadness, well, here comes the hope, right? And starts in verse 21. Um, Though the Lord has judged, he will have mercy again, right? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, okay? So the consistent character of God that brings judgment will also bring restoration. This is the lamenter's hope, okay? And you see down in like verses 40 through 42, here he's calling the people to confess their sins, to repent and turn back to the Lord, Okay, so this is the the central point of the book. And then we go back. So in that chiasm, you step back uh, and you repeat the area that you were at before. And so you hear again the voice of the man of affliction. And um, here he, the the main point, if you look like verses 61 through 66, uh, he's talking about all this affliction that has happened. Uh, But he closes with a confident assurance that Israel's enemies will not get the last laugh. Right? They're not the ones that are, that are going to win. Uh, he says there that they may be rejoicing and laughing over the fall of Israel, but their end is near. Okay. Um, and then we get to chapter 4, and again we see a, a, a chapter dealing with the, what the Lord has done. So before we saw the destruction of the, of the city in chapter 2, in chapter 4 we see the destruction of the people. And here it's describing really the awful state that the people are living in. Um, Look at verses one and two. Valuable things are no longer seen as valuable. So like gold gold is scattered um, on the street. Uh, Look at what uh, the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. You see in verse four, children are starving. Verse five, people are dying of starvation. Verses seven through eight are talking about beautiful people that are now emaciated and filthy. Picture Dachau, right? People coming out of the concentration camps. Verse 10, they've resorted to cannibalism, eating their own children. And then we see in verses 11 through 13 why all of this has happened, why this has come upon them. And then finally, we get to the last part, chapter five. And here the people speak. So before the city spoke, now the people speak. And their cry is, restore us, O Lord. Verse 7, they recognize they are bearing judgment for their iniquities. 
uh, and then they make a plea for restoration to God who endures forever, who does not change, who does not forsake his promises. Look at verses 19 and 22. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And it's interesting, it ends with a question, right? Unless you remain angry with us, right? Um, But for the faithful, they know there's no question there. They know the Lord will be faithful to his promise to restore. Just as he was faithful to bring judgment, he will be faithful to restore. And that's where we go next, right? With Daniel and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, what is the Lord doing? He is restoring the people.